Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles in the pew to page 769, 769, or your personal Bibles to Amos chapter 7. If you're new with us, we are studying through these smaller prophets at the end of the Old Testament, the minor prophets. We've been in Amos for a while. He's one of the longer minor prophets. We've learned that he's a farmer, a shepherd, and uh, he's hard-hitting. He's very blunt. He's very plain-spoken. And he, like the rest of the minor prophets, they don't have a lot of time. They go right to the heart of things, and they speak very plainly into every area of life. They nose into all kinds of areas that you might not imagine that Jesus is also Lord of. And Amos's primary burden as he is sent from the south to the north, from Judah to Israel, his main burden is the heart of God. That the poor, the weak, the outcasts, the vulnerable are not being taken care of. At times they're even being oppressed. And God said, I want you to go there. I want you to stand up for those. I want you to turn the hearts of my people back to the gospel. Yes, the Old Testament is called the gospel, the good news. I have redeemed them. Therefore, all of their actions are to be in response to me. That's the message of chapter 2, verse 10. That's the prism through which we view everything in the book of, of Amos, just like we view everything in Scripture through the gospel. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, God says. I bought you with the blood of the lamb, with the firstborn. And how can you forget my mercy by not showing it to others? Chapter 7 through 9 here, we come to the climax of the book. The five visions, the five warning visions. And uh, today, we'll look at a couple of those. The final, we'll conclude, we'll to study all four, vision, four of the five visions. Next, next week, chapter 9 will be the final vision. And basically, these are warning the people of Israel and Judah by extension. This is what's going to happen if you don't turn back to me. He's got to get their attention. He spared them of a couple of these already, but they must turn back or he will discipline them back into faithfulness. How do you get yourself straight with the Lord? How do you get yourself refocused? By focusing more on doing things or is it, as we said last week, thinking differently? It is thinking differently about what you see and what is it that we are supposed to see. We begin reading in chapter 7. Verse 4, and then I'll skip to chapter 8. We've read these two chapters in, in full, but just these selected verses. Chapter 7, verse 4. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This is also 
what shall not be, said the Lord God. Now that's the second vision that, that uh, Amos got that he pled with the Lord to spare them of. And, and this one God turned his back away from. He, he relented from this one. But now the third vision, which will come if they do not repent. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they will cry. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy. And bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, Ah, when will the new moon be over that we shall sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small, the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall fall shall faint for thirst, Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. O Lord, would you open our eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ coming through this book, through all of Scripture, as the only hope of salvation, the only motivation for living gratefully, joyfully. O Lord, cause Christ to be high and lifted up afresh this day from this Old Testament passage, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. 
You may have encountered a similar scene to this one I'm going to describe at your Thanksgiving celebrations. One of my friends was gathered with his very large family in his mom and dad's home, and, and uh, Thanksgiving was a, a big production. It has certainly become a giant production by this time because the family had had grown. The, all the, everyone was married. There were multiple children. They were packed in to the house. You could hardly fit another soul in there. And, and as the numbers increased through the years, so the work on the mom, who insisted on doing everything herself, and uh, she, this day, was overwhelmed. The turkey wasn't basting properly. It wasn't getting to the right temperature. The green beans weren't cooking properly. And then the crowning blow of all things. She's rushing around giving orders, barking at this person, that person. She's angry. She's frustrated. And she comes to the crowning point, the tipping point, the straw that broke the camel's back. The, The gravy wouldn't thicken up. And she burst into tears. She was angry and crying all at the same time. And her son came in and said, Mom, why are you so angry? Why are you so anxious? What is the big deal? And she turned to him and said, Because it is Thanksgiving. (laughs) Yes, Mom. It's Thanksgiving. We're gathered to give thanks. We're all here. We're thankful for that. We've got plenty of food without the gravy. We're thankful for what we have. Watch this. There is no gravy this year at Thanksgiving. Nobody cared. It's easy to lose the focus, isn't it? To lose sight of the main thing. What is the main thing? thing in the book of Amos. It's the same throughout the whole of Scripture. The main thing in terms of of ethical demands, the, the duties that are required, the main thing is thanksgiving for grace. Thanksgiving for the supply of God's redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we lose focus on that, when we lose that that, that focus on the main thing, then it becomes the duty itself. Or we get angry at God. Or we feel overwhelmed or we feel resentful. But when the main thing is what has Jesus done for me, therefore, how may I respond? It changes all of life. So why is God confronting them in the way they are working, as we focused last week. Why is he confronting them on the the way they use their their recreation or the time in between work and worship? And why is he confronting them on the way they behave at church? Because they've lost sight of the main thing. When we focus on Jesus, the fact that that his father gave him up for us and subjected him to the curse, to the burden of the law, to the, to the, the threats and the punishment of hell in our place that we might be raised with him 
into a new position as sons and daughters, when that is our focus, it'll transform the way we work, the way we play, the way we involve ourselves at church. It'll all look like worship. What does it mean to worship God? What does it, what does it mean to worship God in our play, in the life that is in between work and church? Well, where, first of all, do I get that in the passage? It comes in verses 4 to 6 and 7 to 10. In verses 4 to 6, he describes the Lord holding a plumb line. That's a heavy piece of metal on the end of a line. You hold it up and gravity directs it in such a way that it becomes a straight edge for, for something to be built true. And so God says, I'm measuring, I'm measuring the way you're living and everything that is not focused on me will be judged. We're told that in the New Testament too, that all of our works will be submitted to the fire and that which is not done for his glory will be burned up. And then in chapter 8, verses 7 to 10, he describes some ordinary things. The Lord has sworn by by the pride of Jacob, surely I'll not forget any of your deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again? What is this? This is an allusion back to the days of, of slavery in Egypt. When the land that they worshiped, that they took such pride in, that was so profitable to them, became a weapon formed against them, it turned on them. God says, I've brought you into this land. Remember, I brought you across the wilderness for 40 years. I provided your your clothing and your shoes and food and drink, and I brought you into this land which is, is so fruitful and so abundant. It's like, like it's flowing with milk and honey. And because I am not the folk, because you've forgotten that I have redeemed you, and you're working in such a way that you rest from the creation only for yourself and because you're enjoying the creation only for your self-indulgence and not harvesting in such a way that it benefits those around you. I'm going to make the, I'm going to make the land turn on you as I called it, caused it to turn on the Egyptians. And on that day, verse 9, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight. Again, the creation is becoming an enemy. And verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Those occasions which are normally fun and festive and joyful, I'm going to turn them into dirges. I'm going to turn them into funerals. Now, what is the proof? What is the proof for why these have turned on the Lord? They've just forgotten the Lord. They're using his gifts and not glorifying the giver. What's the proof that that is happening? Verse 14, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as our God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Remember, we learned historically that Jeroboam, the king who is mentioned in chapter 7, the king of Israel, 
was threatened by his people leaving and going down south to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And so he said, I don't want my people to go down there. They'll just, they'll stay there and not come back. They won't pay taxes. They won't be in my, they won't be in my army and so forth. So I'm going to imitate the temple. I'm going to make two little temples up here in Dan and Bethel. And then there are some other holy places they can worship at Beersheba and some in Samaria. There'll be, it'll be convenient. And what, 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 is, the, what is the upshot of, of their worshiping these gods? It is that they don't care to serve. Your ethics reveals your theology. So he says, the reason you are not caring for the poor, for the needy, for those who are left out, the reason you're not obeying the gleaning laws and not sharing and not advocating for those in need, serving those who are the least among you, the reason you're not is because of the gods you worship. The gods you worship are self-consumed. They're only concerned about you bringing more to them and they're threatening and so forth. And so you become like the gods you worship. But that's not the God who redeemed you. The God who redeemed you in, the, in, in Egypt Remember, the New Testament tells us it was Christ who led them out, showing himself symbolically through the blood, through the lamb, through the death of the firstborn. It's that God who redeems us in Jesus Christ. You've forgotten him, but when you remember him, when you are retelling the gospel to yourself and to those around it, when you're hearing it constantly, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that that begotten, only begotten son suffered the pains of death and hell, became sin in your place. When that is your focus, it changes the way you live. It drives your ethics, and you look like you start imitating, as Chase reminded us, you become a mirror of his image in this world, which is to find the lost, to seek, find the lost, and to serve the least. Isn't that what the New Testament says as well with Jesus and his word about judgment in Matthew 25? I separated the sheep from the goats. Here's the proof that you have inherited the, 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 that which I've stored up from you, for you and for all of eternity. The proof that my grace has transformed you is that when I was naked, when I was in prison, when I was hungry, you served me. Or James says in James chapter 1 verse 28 that the nature of true religion is this, to serve orphans and widows. We could translate it this way. Here is the true faith. The true faith serves the least. Now, where we get confused with that is that when we separate one from the other, again, we've been learning about that from James, that faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. So, the gospel transforms our hearts when we despair of our righteousness, receive Christ as our Savior, and Jesus moves into us with his Holy Spirit, it changes the way we live. And we start spontaneously responding to that grace and serving as Jesus did. But when we separate those two, what do we have? We have something that you just believe. 
and, and you, if you talk too much about what you're supposed to do, well, your work's righteous or your social gospel or whatever. And then if you separate works from the gospel, what do you have? You do have social gospel. You do have a false gospel. Either of them is false. Either one, divorced from the other, is not Christianity. Christianity is believing on Christ, being forgiven of your sins, receiving the Holy Spirit, who begins to crucify your old man with Christ, and you begin to live a new life by faith through the one who loves you, and you then imitate the way he lives. So Amos says, here's how I know you're worshiping false gods. It's your ethics. It's by what you're not concerned for or what you are pursuing that is not of the Lord. Now, the old folks in the third, fourth, fifth century used to call this the sin of acedia. We know it when we memorize the seven deadly sins in literature or whatever, we know it as sloth, laziness. But that's not really accurate. Acedia is just not caring. Dorothy Sayers says this, Acedia believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, only remains alive because there is nothing to die for. God says, I look at your lives. Remember, we looked at complacency. That's Acedia. I'm looking at your lives and I'm seeing the God you worship. It can't be me because I have never been ascetic towards you. I have never not cared. I have loved you, believed so much in your hope that I died for you. And when you recognize that, you'll die for me. How do you restore your heart in the in-between time. How do you, how do you get that, that refocus? Well, it's alluded to in verse 13, in, verse, um, in chapter eight, verse nine, when he says, on that day declares the Lord, uh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'm going to mix up. You, you, you have not been observing me thinking about me morning and evening. So I'm going to mix up your morning and evening to get your attention. Now that would mean something more to those in the old days than it does for us because we have lights by which we can imitate daytime all the time. But in the days before, before the electric light bulb, people, people had this regular rhythm of worshiping in the morning and worshiping in the evening. We have it in our hymnal. If you look at your hymnal sometimes, you'll see a collection of morning hymns and a collection of evening hymns. And, and then you have a group of prayers for all the rest of the times. But here was the pattern throughout church history in the morning, in morning, daily morning prayers, as well as morning prayers in the morning worship service, it was a, a focus on thanksgiving for safekeeping in the night and then a committal of the day that it was ahead to say, Lord Jesus, 
Take control of my day. Be the Lord of everything I do this day. Keep me from sin. Keep me in the righteous way. And then in the evening, there was a reflection on the day. Thank you, Lord, for leading me through the day. Forgive me of my sins. And as I lie down to sleep, I remember the day is going to come when I'll lie down for a permanent sleep. So help me, Lord, to make the most of the next day, knowing that I only have so many days to live for you. And that, that, that kind of focus characterized morning and evening worship, which was prescribed in Scripture as well, and what we practice here. I remember your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night, Psalm 92, a Sabbath for the psalm. So how do, you, how do you stir your heart back to, train your heart back to looking at the Lord Jesus throughout your day, even in the in-between times? Think about starting your morning with prayer and Bible reading. Think about something that will interrupt, quote unquote, your day throughout the day. There are apps for that. There's the Book of Common Prayer. I have my copy here, the old Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church, daily service for devotions for families and individuals. It gives you a, a prayer and Bible reading, very brief for the morning and then for uh, noon, and then for afternoon and evening. And it, it's a way to remind yourself, I am moving through this day, and I've forgotten that, uh, that to, do, to think about, to do everything through the lens of the Lord Jesus who died for me. Let me stop a minute and commit myself back to him. And, and let me do that in the morning let me do it in the evening. Let me do it especially on the Lord's day. Remember to worship the Lord your God in, throughout the day, to respond in the in-between times to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you one very, very practical way we can do that, especially as we are reimagining the church and the city. This year we're focusing on reimagining the city. We're having the parish leaders, some of the, the parish leaders who are responsible for the hospitality function of parish leadership, which by the way, you remember a parish is not just a gathering of our people, but we draw lines around certain sections, uh, all the sections of the city, and we say, let's not only find out who lives here who is in our membership, but let's reach all of them with the name of Christ, with the gospel of Christ. And one of the most effective ways we could do that, it's really a novel way in our culture, is through hospitality. Meeting people in their homes or gathering in, in our, our lawns or actually bringing people into our home. And we're reading a little book here. Brian Lewis's team is is having us read this book, The Simplest Way to Change the World. The Simplest Way to Change the World by Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements. It's a short read, very practical. And he says, one way, one simple way anybody can change the world is just by showing personal attention to someone else in a hospitable way. And he, he says it begins this way. 
It'll happen only by this, this transforming the way we think about our in-between times, even in the way we use our homes. It'll happen only by offering the entire way you view your home to God and letting him turn it upside down in the best way possible. You'll have to learn to think of your home primarily from a Christian perspective and let that mindset uproot the ways your culture has taught you to view your home. It's submitting everything in the in-between times of our lives to the Lord Jesus and say, how may this be used? How may I use this? How may I live in this situation in response to the grace of Jesus? I've spent more time there because we're more familiar with the next point, which is that we are to change the way it must change. That is, Jesus' death for us, his resurrection for us must change the way we look at the way we're involved in our church. And you heard the worship language that is uh, used here in verses 7 to 9. I will forget your deeds. I will, in chapters uh, 7, 7 to 9, I'll hold a plumb line up to your worship services. And then in chapter 8, verses 3 and 5, the songs of the temple uh, will uh, go away. They'll be turned into dirges. And chapter 5 and 6 is especially haunting when he says, Here are the, here's the way the people are viewing their Sabbath day, a day that God has given for rest and reflection that we cease from all of our, just like we cease from our usual activities, we cease from all further attempts to win favor with God. But instead, they, maybe some of us as, have, as well, have come to view the Sabbath day as an interruption to what we really want to do. When in the world will this new moon be over and the Sabbath be over so that I can not have to worship, go to worship, but I can offer wheat for sale. I can take advantage of more people. I can make more money. Here the Lord confronts several things in our worship. Number one, he confronts our perfunctory approach. That is that we, that we just do it if we do come, or even if we turn on the computer, we do it as begrudgingly. It's such an interruption to my day, but I've got to get it over with. Why do I have to come back in the evening it's so nice just to stay home and, and kick back. And why, why? It's such an interruption. What kind of demanding God would, would ask that I commit a whole day to him out of the seven he's given? What kind of God would ask me to worship in the morning and the evening? What kind of God would, would ask me to give of my hard-earned money or my precious time? Hear the wrong focus? Whereas when the Lord Jesus is your focus, oh Lord Jesus, what a small thing you ask from me to come and gather with your people and hear the good news retold and experience it incarnationally from others around me. He confronts their inconsistency Instead, he calls us to be persistent in pursuing regular worship. You know, our church attendance as Americans was not great before COVID. In 2021, 
35% of the population went to church one or two times a month. After COVID, now it is uh, less than 30% go to church at least once or two times per month. The greatest drop has occurred through uh, among millennials. 35% do not go to church. 45% of minority millennials do not go to church. The point is not to shame people about not going to church. If we shame people to say, you need to be in church, so that then it comes across in the same way that they are already worshiping. You go to church and God will love you more. That's not the point. The point is, why are they not going to church? What is it that is missing in their lives? How have they been hurt? What have they not realized about their need for the grace of the gospel, the fellowship of those who are gathered here? Let's take then the church to them. As neighbors, as co-workers, in our parishes, let's take the church to them. Let's bring it around them, engage in them with them relationally, bring them into our homes, serve them in their homes, and then build the trust that says, hey, you want, you, do, you, do you appreciate the kind of love you are experiencing in this little community we have in this parish? Why don't you come and worship the Lord with us, it's even better. He calls on us to prepare for worship, and he calls on us to personally participate. It's not that, it's not that God will love you more just by sitting here, and some of you who are joining uh, in virtual ways cannot join us because of health restrictions, but those of you who are joining us in virtual ways or by audio there's, it's hard to describe, but there is something here among God's people when he gets us in a concentrated place. There is something he does here in worship and fellowship that can't be imitated in your living room. And a few years ago, a woman came to join our church, and I asked how she got here, and she said, well, I thought that I was a part of this church for 20-something years, and then I heard you say one time, if you're sitting on your couch watching church, you're missing out on something. She said, so I thought I would come and see what I was missing out on. I can't believe, she said, what I've missed out on for 20-something years. It's the body of Christ gathered the Spirit of God here, not because we're all so great. We'll make you feel a lot better about yourself the more you get to know you. But to experience the Holy Spirit in these concentrated doses of the gospel that come in corporate worship, that's what's awaiting you. Well, to ask the question one more time, how do you, how do you get to this place of seeing everything through gospel eyes, putting on different lenses, not just focusing on how am I going to work better, how am I going to play better, how am I going to be more involved in the church, but instead putting on gospel lenses that if I'm viewing everything through the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, it will, how will it transform my life? How do you get to that place of refocusing on the cross?
I was thinking this week about two very dear friends of mine who are now in heaven. Two very dear friends who responded to a message I preached, not because of the preaching, but because of the, the message that was lifted from the text. They responded in the same way, but it had a, a, a dramatic impact on their lives in very different ways. Uh, the, 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 the sermon was on that story about the woman, you know, who had the bad reputation who came and she knelt at Jesus' feet and she wept over them and she washed them and then she dried those, her, the, his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee, part of a religious group that thought that you worked your way to heaven, Simon the Pharisee said, uh, this is so inappropriate. He, why didn't he dismiss this immoral woman? And, and Jesus, in short, said, you know, the one who has been forgiven much loves much. He didn't mean, he wasn't saying to Simon, you know, I'm sorry, this will never be possible to you because I haven't had to forgive you for very much, Simon. And so she's been forgiven a whole lot more, and so she will love me. Well, that's not the point. The point is, it's the degree of recognition, the degree to which you recognize you have been forgiven determines the amount with which you love him. The more you recognize the truth about yourself from God's perspective, the more you love Jesus. So I suggested in this sermon, almost in a passing way, I, I said, uh, we, we need to pray for the Lord to bring the bottom up to us regularly or to break our hearts or to make us turn our hearts inside out to us and reveal to us how desperately sinful we are, how desperately in need of his cross work we are, and that will change the way we love him. We're not asking for him to make us miserable because he enjoys that or, or because it makes us more holy. We're asking him to show us our hearts as he already knows them to be so that we fall more in love with the one who loves us. Well, these two people, my dear friends, I had an experience different times. Now, one was, was a fellow elder, and I, he, I wouldn't say he was always my dear friend. In fact, he identified himself very early on as someone who was going to be my prayer partner. And this man was so negative and so caustic and so critical. He walked around with us. He was just a curmudgeon all the time. Nobody really liked to be around him, and he blessed me by deciding he was going to be my prayer partner, which meant he was going to pray for me every day, but it also meant in his mind he would take me to lunch once a month. Well, I dreaded it all week before the lunch, and it took me the whole week to get over it. So two weeks out of my month, every month, we're consumed with this negative man. He asked the Lord, he was maybe close to 80, if not 80, he asked the Lord, Show me my heart, like the preacher said. Show me my heart. And while he was walking around the mall one day, the Lord opened his heart and broke it. He came into my office soon after and he said, I don't know why you ever let me be an elder. I was so ornery. I was so unforgiving. I was so difficult. I had no joy. Why did you ever let me be an elder? that it's not my choice. <laughs> he said, I'm, 
I, I, I can't believe what Jesus has done for me. He walked around and told people that all the time. He's a different man. The other woman was so sweet. You know, she's one of those who walked with God. You thought she's going to walk with God and then was not. She's going to walk right on up into heaven. And she asked the same thing. She was walking on the on the, the, the track around the local high school one day and she dropped to her knees and then to her face and she felt like, she said, she felt like a, a, a ton of bricks had been dropped on her and she was so overwhelmed with her sin she couldn't get up for a number of minutes. Now I have to confess to you, my own, my own lack of belief in the gospel came out in both these situations. I thought, you know, in the first one, well, it's about time this happened to you. And the other one, I thought, you didn't need to do that. It's not true. We all need it. We all need to be freshly impressed with what Jesus had to do for us. And when we are, when we realize how much he has forgiven us and how much he must constantly forgive us, we will love much. And loving Jesus, what does it look like? It looks like seeking and serving those he sought and served. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for the word of God that finds us wherever we are. It's seldom comfortable, but we know wherever you cut, you cut in order to heal. Some you have cut this day, making them aware that they've never trusted in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And today, may this be the day of their salvation and transformation by the grace of God. The others of us have been cut by the word to recognize that we have allowed our eyes to be focused in many other places. That the gods of this world, the idols of this world have taught us liturgies that we repeat in, un, in, uh, in familiar ways that take us, take our focus away from Christ. Oh, refocus us this day in worship that every moment of every day to come we would focus on Christ in our work, in our play, in our church involvement. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. God's people said, amen.